Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. Hard to believe it's now almost 10 years since Padre Toma and I started 10 by 9 in the black box in Belfast. In that time we've heard hundreds and hundreds of true stories covering every human experience you could think of. We loved it then and we love it now. Our 10 by 9 events are taking place on Zoom so you can join in wherever you are in the world. But as you'll hear in this podcast, our friends in Australia are back in their venues with live audiences and we are not jealous at all. Now, I have three stories for you today. Two were told when we teamed up with the Scottish Arts Project, Highland Whispers, recently. The theme was senses. And, as I said, one from our friends in Adelaide. Their theme was fashion. So both themes given us the title of this podcast. And first up is a first-timer, David Simpson. He told this from his home in Donegal. My father died first, just days after his 60th birthday. My mother made it to 96. So she got 40 years to go on acting like a spoilt child. No longer cheese to his chalk, free to be the great drama queen. And yet she surprised me when she died. My father was a very logical, rational man, believing in manners, correct behavior and action. Sit up straight, he'd bark at mealtimes. So thinking back now, it's odd that his favorite piece of music was Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, an orgy of romanticism and emotion. His temperament was much more Bach sonatas, measured, balanced of the mind. My mother's menopause pushed him to the limit. Her histrionics hit new heights. All you want is a slave. She screamed as platefuls of Sunday roast were flung onto the dining room table. Having shocked us into silence, she charged up the stairs, clutching a bottle of sleeping pills and the rest of the red wine, retreating to my brother's bedroom. I ran out of the house, unable to take this precipitous descent into chaos. As I turned out of our gate, I heard a bedroom window open. Don't worry, darling, it's nothing to do with you, declaimed my mother to the neighborhood. I quickened my steps till I was running into the woods at the back of our estate. Shame dripped into me like raindrops off the branches. Later, she descended the staircase. In a fashion, I swear I could hear, I'm ready for my close-up now, Mr. DeMille. Flinging open the lounge door, she advanced on my father sitting in his armchair. She started to remonstrate at him about the unfairness of their domestic workloads. My father, slowly and with pointed deliberation, raised his daily telegraph till he could no longer see her. I am not talking to you until you can talk rationally. It was such a completely unrealistic demand to make of my mother. She was a woman who was ruled by her emotions. Opera, theatre, poetry, bashing the piano through some piece of Brahms. And at all times, she demanded attention. 
as the popular Miss Piggy said on the front of a greetings card of the time. Attention, attention, she angrily shouted from a balcony overlooking a crowd of people. When you opened the card, the crowd was shown looking adoringly up at her, puffed up, preening like a peacock. I love attention. My mother took this to extremes at my father's funeral. I hadn't had the easiest relationship with him. I was a rebellious teenager in the late sixties. He was strict, kind of cold, distant. God love him trying to figure out what to do with me. You're walking with me, ordered my mother, as both my brothers had their wives with them. I walked her down the aisle of the Bristol crematorium and sat with her on the front pew. I wasn't feeling much, pretty numb. As the curtains parted, I watched my father's coffin inch its way away from me. Suddenly I realized I was losing him forever. I started to cry. A sharp elbow landed in my ribs, worthy of a heavyweight boxer. Stop crying. You're supposed to be supporting me. I stopped. But you need to know that from the hour and the day that my father died prematurely from throat cancer, my mother had not shown any grief at all. She never mentioned him. Before the ashes were cold, she started to live the life of Riley, spending her good widow's pension and my grandfather's carefully garnered savings. She set herself the goal to visit all the Roman ruins in the world and she almost did. 40 years later, she died of old age and dementia in an old people's home that had genuinely enjoyed her histrionics. The cook said to me, she would hear my mother wailing over some slight or unforgivable lack of attention. Oh, said the cook, there goes Margaret. Good to hear she's still with us. When I went to see her in the chapel of rest, I burst out wailing at the top of my voice. As soon as I started, my wife, Tony, rushed out of the room. Later, she explained to me, you went full Margaret. My brother, Hugh, was crying quietly, the chorus to my Greek tragedy. Leaving the room, he left me alone with my mother. I let go of her cold, dead hand and started to leave. Realizing this was my last time with her, I turned back and started to wail again. Only this time, I swear, I saw her two top fingers move as if she was shooing me out of the room. The crying stopped immediately. Oh, maybe I should go. I left the room and sheepishly went out to reception, painfully aware that everyone in the building would have heard my anguish. But she was to give me an even greater surprise at the memorial service. I was seated a few rows back from the front with a 90 year old neighbor of ours from childhood. 
I think Karen, my twin brother's wife, was speaking. A thought struck me as I looked at my mother's picture on the front of the order of service. Someone had told me that the soul stays around for four days after their death. I thought I'd chance trying to contact my mother. As soon as I had that impulse, I heard her voice. You're not broken. I was stunned. It was such a positive thing for her to say, and for once not about her. In the days and weeks that followed, I kept returning to the idea that I'm not broken. The clear implication being that I'm whole. It was revelatory. It explained so many of my insecurities, my neediness. From the grave, or was it from the crematorium fires, she had given me a healing message. Until now, I haven't told people about her surprise parting gift. And had my father still been alive, I definitely wouldn't have told him. I can hear him now. David, if you think you saw your mother's fingers move, or worse still, heard her talking to you, you, my son, are taking leave of your senses. What a brilliant story, David, and what a character Margaret was. Thanks so much for introducing us. You'll be able to see David tell that story once I get it uploaded to our YouTube channel. Practically all the stories from our Zoom events are there in bite-sized chunks going right back to April of last year. Up next is a story from Australia. 10 by 9 Adelaide is run by the amazing Danny Madsen and Mel Lambert with help from Ben Roberts. You can read the amazing story of how it came about on our website. They meet at the Jade Cafe on land owned by the Garner people and this story was told recently by Ben. Things started to go wrong for my life the day I started choosing my own clothes. Thank you. Um, I'd never had to do it as a child. I'd gone to nice Catholic schools, so most days I wore the uniforms. I got out of bed, put on my uniform, didn't have to think, didn't have to make choices. Came home, tried to escape mum as she desperately tried to get me to change out of my uniform, ran out into the streets, played until the sun went down or my school uniform walked itself off to the laundry in disgust, went to bed, got up the next day, same thing. And on weekends, I wore the clothes that my mum had bought me. So she'd made the choices. And shout out to mum if she ever hears this story. She bought the best clothes and she still does, uh, unlike most mothers in the 70s. But things changed when I was 13 years old and we moved to the United States. We went to Morgantown, West Virginia for 18 months or so and I found myself faced with an entirely novel situation. A, a government school. <laughs> with no uniform. They wore civvies. So off we marched to Walmart and into the young men's aisle, which was where Mother decided it was time to cut the apron strings. It was time for me to become a man. It was time for me to choose my own gear. And so there I stood, 
surrounded, drowning in the imperious plenitude of cut and colour, feeling overwhelmed. And so I settled on a really simple strategy. I thought, I'm going to buy the things I like. And so I did. And they were blue and brown. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> Don't misunderstand me. It wasn't all like just block colours like I'm wearing tonight. Um, there were plaids and there were patterns and there, were ev there was even gingham. There were textures, seersucker and corduroy and pique. There may have even been the odd thread of red in amongst the baby blues. And here and there a cyan that kind of leans suspiciously towards teal. <laughs> but at the end of the day, brown and blue was my choice. So that's what I wore on my first day at Suncrest Junior High. Suncrest sucks. <laughs> Surrounded by loud-talking, gum-chewing, makeup-wearing Americans, and that was just the boys, with <laughs> names like Shebang Bang and... Chuck Mullet. Actually, Chuck Mullet was a real name. Shebang Bang was made up. Um, <laughs> brown and blue. And brown and blue is what I wore every subsequent day in that school until we flew home to Australia a year and a bit later. Back in Oz, I settled back into my comfort zone, my school uniform, in a Catholic school. <laughs> and I made a new group of friends. It was an old boys' school. And we were about 14, but the following year we were to move into a co-ed school. And as September passed, and then October, the whiff of pheromones grew stronger in the air. And my mates all discovered girls. And then they discovered fashion. And through them, I discovered that beyond the confines of Walmart, brands have names like mystical names with the power to evoke the deepest consumer desire. Names like Okanui, which was a brand of board shorts with a particularly garish hibiscus pattern. And kayaks. Does anyone remember kayaks? Yeah, no, if you think of, think of those boat shoes, like nice shiny leather boat shoes that gentlemen of a certain age and a certain social class wear... Um, take away the nice leather and replace it with a kind of a foam sponge. <laughs> Cover it with a beige than beige layer of cotton and you've got kayaks. Um, so kind of like the feel was like comfort, the, like walking on air. The look was like relaxed and no thought whatsoever for anything aesthetic. <laughs> kind of like the Crocs of the 80s. <laughs> so, enchanted by these brand names, my mates succumbed. Lust for girls lured them onto the rocks of consumer fashion, and I, like Odysseus, roped to the mast, could do nothing but stand there and watch in horrified fascination and fascinated horror until I just cut the ropes myself and just dived on in with them. After all, I didn't lust after the girls. Um, but in the presence of the girls at this new school, I discovered something new about myself. Girls, you'll find this hard to believe, but girls found me attractive. <laughs> and 
And I know this because in the first few frenzied weeks of co-ed school, the girls took a poll of the, I think it was the cutest boys or the sexiest boys. And in that poll, I came second. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Never mind that uh, the, the winner was Anthony Lehman, who went on to become Lemo on TV and the radio. Never mind that in lieu of the girls' votes, I'd have happily settled for Lemo <laughs> at the time. Lemo, if you're out there, 0417. No. Uh, <laughs> but I felt desired and desirable. And so I had to give the masses what they wanted. I'm their saviour. That's what they call me. So Christian the army from my head to... M- Sorry, wrong stage. Um... So I slipped into the world of fashion and the world of colour, but used to blue and brown, I just couldn't handle it. Uh, I tried to copy my mates and what they wore, but nothing worked for me. I couldn't fit them all together into a cohesive story. (laughs) Kind of like this story, really. Um, (laughs) And so on the top, I wore a kind of a cheap... Um, burgundy wind cheater, and you're going to find out later in this story just how much I was cheated by burgundy. <laughs> On my legs, I squeezed my pert little tush into some black cigarette leg jeans, and then I wore kayaks on my feet. So it looked like my top half wanted to go off shopping at Walmart. My bottom half wanted to, part wanted to go sort of illegally dancing all night at the Mars bar, and my feet just couldn't be fucked doing anything. <laughs> So I just, I just couldn't get it all to work together. Um, but in the midst of all this, I had one comfort, my hair. My hair was my crowning glory. It was blonde in those days and perfectly straight, could do anything with it, given enough hairspray and gel. Um, so whatever the rest of me looked like, my hair was spectacular. So I grew a little rat's tail and dyed it pink, and when it got long enough, I plaited it, and the girls loved it. Shame the boys didn't. Um, But in the end, I gave up on the whole fashion thing. I thought, if I can't fit in, if I can't be like them, I'll be different. And so my colours all faded to black. I started to wear black, black everywhere, except for the occasional kind of violent red shirt with splashes of vomit paisley. And skulls. I loved skulls. So I had skulls on my bandana, which bound my long, flowing hair. Did I mention that my hair was my crown and glory? Um, (laughs) Skulls on a bandana, skulls in earrings. I had this particularly large and gruesome skull, which had a jaw that moved as you moved your head. So I was, I was different. At school, all the boys wore long strides and shoes. I wore short shorts and sandals. And most of the time I didn't wear my sandals. I carried them around in my hand, which was against the rules. But I was a straight-A student. And at Sacred Heart, they didn't care what you did as long as you were good at sport or got straight A's. So I carried my sandals around. They were like, ah, Ben. I got my ear pierced and wore big earrings, which was against the rules. And they went, oh, look at Ben. He's so naughty. I grew my hair past my collar, which was also against the rules, and they said, Ben, when are you going to get your hair cut? I could get away with anything. 
I played guitar badly, but I used to walk around with my guitar slung over my back, my bandana on, my long hair looking like Axl Rose. Except there was one problem. He had red hair, and I didn't. And I wanted that red hair. I was born with red hair. My dad had red hair. His siblings had red hair. The first girl I ever disastrously dated had red hair. She doesn't speak to me still, 45 years later. I wanted that red hair. So one day I bought a bottle of dye to dye my hair, just a kind of a natural looking red. And on the bottle it said, it'll wash out after 12 washes. But that's as far as I read. I didn't read the instructions. So I put the whole lot through my hair and I left it in for five times as long as it was meant to. And then when I washed it out, my hair had gone this lurid science fiction purple. <laughs> and it didn't wash out after 12 washes. So about six washes later, I had to go to Sky Show with my friends. If you remember Sky Show, it was like fireworks synchronised to music, thousands of people. So I stayed at home for days hoping that my hair would fade and it didn't. And I finally had to go outside, go to Sky Show where I was going to meet my friends. And among my friends was John Fabrici, tall, handsome, had a bit of a crush on him uh, and he had no filter. So I put on my best white jeans and my white Breton fishing top with the stripes across and caught the train into Mile End Station. It was a hot day, sun was bright and as I got off the train, something happened. The late afternoon sun hit my hair <laughs> and it began to glow. Like If you lived in the 80s and you saw the film The Dark Crystal, was like that, like this bright glowing <laughs> thousands of people around me on the platform. And John Fabrici, two carriages away on the same train, gets out, looks around with his tall physique, spots me, and yells out, Roberts, you puffer! <laughs> and they all looked. And the horror of that moment propelled me out of wearing colourful clothes and colourful hair forever, drove me back into the arms of the Catholic Church, <laughs> into a, an order of priests where we wore a uniform, which was brown, not even blue. Fortunately, kind of propelled me even further back out to the point where I was free and suddenly faced with the imperious plenitude of cut and colour again, choosing my own clothes. And I bought all my clothes which were blue and brown. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I just need to share one of the Facebook posts that really got me giggling yesterday was this one that came up from Ben. Anyone have any old pics of me for a project? Particularly looking for ones with earrings, purple hair, interesting fashion choices, quality not important. First comment, what about one of you wearing brown? <laughs> I was just like, that's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant indeed, Danny. And Ben, thanks so much. I'm a big fan of blue myself, but I would go easy on the brown. Sending much love to Adelaide. Now, as you know, Tamban Nine is always free and always will be, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. If you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10 That is story at 10 
Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. And now, here's our third story, back to the theme of senses. And this is first-timer Margaret Aburn, who I'm told has never been called Margaret in her life but Mags. So, take it away, Mags. A rummage is an organised thing. It's planned. You know who is going to do what, where, with whom and why. Everyone has their job and it may have been weeks in the planning. Contrary to what most folks think, you're there to look not for things, drugs and so on, but space. Space where people could store things. It's like playing an elaborate game of hide and seek. I loved to rummage. It was one of the best parts of the job and ship rummage was the best of the best. Partly, I think, because I love ships and the water. I should say here that I can't swim, so there was always an added wee frisson every time we boarded at sea with no nets, the fun of me on the Jacob's Ladder and the whoosh of the water below me. Ships are noisy beasts, the clattering, clanking sound of metal things doing their clattering and clanking. To be honest, I, I didn't feel it necessary to learn what they were doing in their clattering and clanking because that knowledge wasn't required for skulking in round about them, unless I needed to take things apart. And even then, you didn't really need to know what it was for in order to get it back together again, as long as you put all the bits back in the reverse order that you took them off, and where, from where you took them off, the job's a good one. But that's not really what this story is about. A vessel had come in, a big one. We had rummaged its sister ship the year before with a small team. And this one, well, this one had been in all the right places for people to be putting really bad stuff in hidden spaces. It was all planned. Extra staff, stagging, an underwater camera, a drugs dog, the whole whack. She arrived and we boarded and that's when it all started. The shouting, the yelling, the telephone calls to my boss's boss. I think you need to get down here. You see, generally when we turn up on any vessel, people did what they were told. We had a warrant that said they had to. This captain obviously hadn't got the memo. He was about my height, I'm a gloriously tall five foot and half an inch, and he was jumping up and down like a wee zebedee. I know we use the phrase jumping his own height, but I'd never actually seen it until then. And he was objecting, oh my, was he objecting, to the removal of some previously identified containers. We'd sat for hours, my boss and I, identifying those containers, and the ship's captain did not want us to examine them. He was still shouting. At me, then at my boss, and then at my boss's boss. I'd never heard anyone shout like that at a senior officer. But to be honest, I'd never really come across anyone who tried very hard to obstruct us in our job other than the fishing vessel incident, but that'd be really quiet, even when it had totally kicked off. Most seafarers just accepted that this was the customs and we were going to be looking, and that was it. And it wasn't just the captain, the chief engineer was twitchy and difficult. He may as well have pointed at the deck filled with containers and said, what containers? I see no containers. Now my grasp of Polish is scant at best. And I hadn't a clue what the ship's master was shouting, but it was fairly obvious he was not going to cooperate. And he was still bouncing up and down and yelling in Polish, about two inches from my boss's face. The chief engineer was not bouncing up and down, but he was definitely yelling 
about two inches from my face. Normally on a ram, it would have been started by this point. A couple of bodies off to the engine room, usually me, because it's the warmest place on a ship and nobody wants the four peak in the rain. Some off to do cabins. So the vessel would be sectioned up and everyone had their own area. I do radio check in regularly, especially as the only female. Eagle Oscar, Eagle Oscar, Eagle One, come in. A hiss and a click. Eagle One, this is Eagle Oscar, go ahead. Eagle Oscar, all good. A hiss and a click. It took hours of discussions, but common sense and the threat of holding the vessel at enormous expense to the ship's owners prevailed. And finally, in the very late afternoon, we were able to get a small crane in and get one of the multiple containers we had identified off the ship. Have you ever heard a crane? More creaking, clanking and clattering, with the occasional high-pitched squealing noise as great big iron shackles and bolts are utilised to secure the container, and it's then heaved high above your head and slowly swung over the water and down to the port side. The quayside was small. We could only get one container off the vessel, and the boss was pushing for us to get on with it and finish up. I've been in a fair few containers in my time. The worst was the tea boxes. Not crates, but boxes. Boxes are flimsy, and that's why I got sent in, smallest and lightest. I got stuck right at the back in high summer, and I could hear the sweat drip down off my forehead onto the boxes. Drip, drip, drip. Couldn't go forward or back. I was in there for 45 minutes, flat out on flimsy tea boxes, listening to the scratch and scuffle of the rats somewhere underneath me. Not really a fun afternoon, that one, and I was most grateful to be hauled out by the feet and damn the tea boxes. So this container we'd fought so hard to examine was full of bright blue plastic barrels. They rambled as we rolled out two, and there was a pop as we prized off the lids. The manifest said they contained a liquid laxative. There was much joking and inappropriate bowel-related humour. We dipped them and found nothing. Imagine our disappointment. What had we missed? All the signs had been there. We were despondent. We'd had a hard week rummaging other vessels, but this had been the one we were sure of. No team found anything. Not an extra few bottles, no extra cigarettes, nothing. And that was really the clue that something was really wrong. You see, I've never rummaged a vessel and didn't find something. There was always something, even if it was just 40 fags. Not that you do someone for 40 fags. You're not there for 40 fags and two extra bottles of vodka. You're there to get the big stuff. So to not find anything? We were stood down and sent home. Grampy, Granach and Gurney. We'd found the space, but lack of resources and especially time had got the better of us. But the story doesn't end there. My boss was a stellar bloke, and I got a call late that night. Are you still twitchy? Yeah, are you? Yeah, do you want to put some extra hours in? That's why the two of us were in the office on a Sunday morning, poring over ship's manifests. The only signs were the ticking of the clock and the scratch of pens as we checked and rechecked. And that's when we found it. The number on the bond seal that we'd taken from our first container wasn't the same as the number on the ship's manifest. I checked the next one. It was different. I count phone rings. 
I didn't realise that until I sat on the phone that day waiting for the station officer to pick up. Finally, hi, can you come in? We found something. I listened to the clock tick as my boss presented our case. He listened to the clock tick while I presented our case. It had a hollow tick. You could almost hear the minute hand wobble when it bounced the next minute forward. And each minute was a delay. And then it got very, very busy. Tension and adrenaline fueled calls to intelligence in London, persuading, presenting evidence. So many phone calls ringing, phones ringing, handsets dropped and dumped, crattling into cradles. And then onto the next call, the kettle clicking off as yet another mug of tea was made. We jumped every time the phone rang, almost conditioned to dive for it across the desk. Will the Norwegians pull the vessel? Will they select our containers? Will they rummage? The vessel was rummaged in Stavanger, where they have massive cranes and a huge quayside, far beyond the capacity of a small port in the north of Scotland. And they were able to get all our identified containers off. They found 50 million Norwegian kroners worth of marijuana right where we had told them it was, in the blue barrels about three rows back from where I had sat, despondent on a blue barrel around 48 hours before. Imagine, more disappointment. The target had been right, the right space identified, no drugs seized. Imagine our relation. We had been right. The international cooperation required to get those drugs off the street was lauded by the Norwegian press. My auntie phoned from her home in Norway to ask if her wee niece had been involved because she'd seen it on their telly. Her call, a mash of cultured Edinburgh vowel sounds and fast gabbled Norwegian. But you see, this is not just about the sounds of a rummage, all those metal noises that make you wince and suck your teeth. Not the smash of waves on a metal howl and sloshing as the water turns back on itself. It's not just about the screeching whine of ill-oiled container doors as you open them, or the ringing of the telephone, or the shout of, you'd better get down here. Not even the reassuringly solid thud made by the slam of the lamdy door as we would pile out to go and find the space, the hiding place, the prohibited and restricted stuff. It's also about what follows all that noise. You see, Despite knowing that these drugs were and are coming through the north of Scotland, the government at the time closed that station that very same year. And now, well, now there's just silence. Thanks so much, Mags. I do hope we'll hear more from you. In fact, from all three of you telling stories on here today. Mags joined us from her home in Inverness, so distance is no object if you have a story to tell. And that is pretty much it for this podcast. If you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10 by 9com and get in touch. We are always, always, always looking for storytellers. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to tell everyone about it and maybe even give us a rating or review wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So blame me. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Marianne, who's behind Highland Whispers. But thanks most of all to David Simpson, Ben Roberts and Mike Zabern. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.